Good evening, everyone. A little bit of a light crowd, but I'm glad you're here with me tonight. As Brother Monty mentioned, we're in uh, chapter 21 tonight of Acts. And uh, this chapter, we've got uh, a few verses that are kind of on outlining some travel details here. There's not a lot that we can glean from that. We'll go through that. There's a little bit of an instance where we have some appeasement to the Judaizers, and it's another one of those purification rituals that are kind of confusing and difficult to understand for us non-Jews. Uh, and then there's some trouble for Paul, kind of as usual. You know, those types that are always in trouble and kind of like, is it, is it them? How are they always in the, in the right place at the right time for everything to be wrong? And I, that's just Paul. That's, <laughs> that's wherever, where he goes. Um, but it's kind of interesting in this case that we see... Um, you know, a lot of prophesying, troubles coming, and, and we get a good lesson in, in how Paul handles that and deals with it. Um, so let's dive into our text tonight. <clears throat> uh, here in, in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail. Now, when we had departed from them is referring to the, the elders at Ephesus. So we look back to chapter 20 because all this stuff really blends together. Um, some of these translations, instead of saying when we had departed from them, it said when we had torn ourselves from them. Luke talking about uh, it, it's, it's a tough thing to say goodbye. And they had this strong emotional connection with all the people that they brought into Christ. And here they are um, speaking to, to the elders at Ephesus in, in, in the first chapter 20. And they're talking about, um, you know, troubles coming. And Paul's basically saying, I'm, you're never going to see me again. He's pretty sure. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but... He's, he says, this is, this is goodbye for good. And oh, by the way, things are going to be tough for you guys. So, you know, keep your chin up. And then they leave. And so that's, that's where we are here is they're leaving this situation where they had this, this bond and it's just a tough departure and they're continuing on in the work and in the travels. <clears throat> and and leaving is just tough. Um, it, it's another one of those things. And, and again, I'll, I have a reference in here later about how the Bible puts things kind of plainly and bluntly. But if you really look into the context, it's, it's a lot more emotional than that. So as it says, now we come to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos or Kos, I don't know. I didn't study how to pronounce that. The following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, the ship was to unload our cargo. As I said, some travel details. I don't know what else to glean from that. Um, so carrying on here, verse 4, it says, In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied, accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So they spent a week in Tyre, where again, the disciples are prophesying that Paul is getting into trouble in Jerusalem. And I, I find this interesting. So the Spirit is showing them that trouble lied ahead. But the message getting to Paul was, please don't go. And Paul ignores that message. And if the Lord really didn't want Paul to go to Jerusalem, then the message of don't go to Jerusalem would have gone directly to Paul. Because he wouldn't have disobeyed the message of don't go. This was just their will. Don't go. We don't want you to be hurt. We, we're afraid for you. Don't go. But the message from the Holy Spirit was that trouble's coming, <clears throat> not don't go. So if <clears throat> Paul had, he had clarity of mind of his plan 
of God's plan for Paul, what his mission was. And of all the worldly influences that we've got to deal with here, I'd say fear is probably one of the most underrated influences. You know, we don't really talk about it much in terms of an influence and, and um, you know, sinful temptation or whatever, but fear, it's a really powerful thing. And bravery, it, it, that's not being fearless. Bravery is being afraid, but you go anyway. You do it anyway. Well, Paul knows his strength lies in Jesus. And I'm sure he was afraid. Um, everybody's telling him it's, this is going to be bad. He, he's telling the elders at Ephesus there, you're not going to see me again, and things are going to be tough for you. He knew that it wasn't smooth sailing, but he did what he knew he had to do anyway. He bravely followed Jesus. <clears throat> In verse 7 it says, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. <coughs> and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. The language used here there in verse 11, it's, it's a bit confusing. I, I first read this, and I... I wasn't sure if Agabus tied up Paul with his own belt or, or what was going on there, but I, I looked into the wording and I studied that a bit. And what Agabus was doing, he borrowed Paul's belt and he, he bound his own hands and his own, own feet and he said, this is what is going to happen to you, Paul. They're, they're going to bind you in a similar fashion and drag you off. And so the warnings about going to Jerusalem, they seem to be getting a little bit more detailed. People keep saying, no, don't go, don't go. Now he's getting clarity, he's going to be bound. But, you know, considering what Paul's been through by this point, I don't think being hogtied is really all that scary. And so it didn't phase him. Paul's going to go anyway. But those around him have been hearing this stuff, and they're, they're seeing now he's getting bound, and they had this demonstration of borrowing his belt and, and showing this is what it's going to look like. So it says in verse 12, Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So they're, they're very worried about him, just like everybody else. The message uh, that they're, they're portraying was, Don't go. Um, and again, I think that was not the message that Paul was intended to receive because he went. <clears throat> and he says, what, what are you doing trying to just tug at my heartstrings and... and cry and get all emotional stop it don't try to break my heart because I've already made my mind up I'm, I'm ready for whatever comes whether it's being bound or even all the way to death at Jerusalem I'm ready for that in the name of the Lord Jesus and they realized they couldn't change his mind so they said all right fine so you know, whatever the Lord wills so be it so they stopped pleading with him and stopped trying to keep him from going <clears throat> after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and, and brought with them a certain, and I looked this one up, and I'm still not real sure about it, but I think it's either M. Mason or M. Mason, but uh, I'm just going to say Mason. So this, this Mason fellow of Cyprus, who was an early disciple uh, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. 
When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his misery, all right, through, through his ministry. Excuse me. So this is familiar. Paul goes and gives a summary of what's happened in his work and all his travels and, and kind of says, all right, here's, here's the story. <clears throat> and they respond. When they heard it, it says in verse 20, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So here we have more trouble from the Judaizers. I don't know if you recall, in, in May I spoke on Acts 15. There was a bunch of these believing Jews who were pushing circumcision. And for, for me, the lesson in that was how Paul handled it. He did it with understanding. Um, you have to see things from the point of view that others have before you can even really start to convince them of anything new. And this is the situation that Paul was just continuously in. All the Christians, really, and those trying to work this out with the Jews and, and the Gentiles, and we're all coming together, we're all one body of Christ now. It was not a, a real clean transition for a lot of them. And it's just, you know, what Paul had to deal with. It's another example of, of Christian Jews getting real defensive over the law of Moses, being very protective of it and, and very concerned with those things. So they said, look, you're here. People are going to know about it. So, of course, the assembly is going to meet. And we need to ease the tensions about this. People are hearing that you're, that you're telling them that the Jews don't need to do things that the Jews do and... and you know, don't worry about those customs. They're kind of convoluting what Paul's really actually saying. <clears throat> and so they have an idea. In verse 23, it says, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Okay, so again, last time I spoke, chapter 18. Uh, Paul had taken a vow and shaved his head. This Jewish custom is, is mentioned here again. What's being asked of Paul is that he get involved in these four men, these unnamed men uh, who took this vow, and Paul getting involved. This is essentially a cultural gesture. So as a recap about this Nazareth vow, uh, in Jewish law, there were specific regulations for purification, especially those who were thought to have defiled themselves in some way. Right? So they... They could have uh, come in contact with Gentiles and got cooties or whatever happens there or engaging in activities considered unclean, according to Jewish customs. Just being in a house uh, where somebody died with a dead body, you're unclean now. You need purification. The purification ritual usually consists of a series of actions, including washing, offering sacrifices, observing a specific period of purification. So by taking part in this ritual, Paul is demonstrating that he had not abandoned his Jewish identity or the importance of the Mosaic law. It was a gesture intended to appease those accused, who, those that accused him and to show his respect for Jewish practices. But Paul was not taking this vow because he had done something himself to render himself unclean according to the old law. But the most important thing here, it's, it's important to note that Paul's participation in this ritual does not imply that he believed these rituals were necessary for salvation or that he compromised his faith in Christ. In all of his writings, Paul emphasizes that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, not by observing the Jewish law or rituals. His participation 
in this purification ritual is just a matter of cultural sensitivity and a way to build bridges with the Jewish community. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 20, he says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain Jews. I mean, he was already a Jew, but he joined in with them and their customs and, and were like them so that they would accept him and welcome him and he would have that ability to influence them. And that's what's going on here. He's, he's uh, submitting himself to this, to this vow, to this um, purification ritual so that people can see, okay, he's not disregarding the old law. Um, he's, he's being reverent towards it. <clears throat> uh, but there's a qualifying statement here. And then they said, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And that's pretty much verbatim where it's written elsewhere that they're recognizing here uh, in laying out this plan for Paul to, to go through this ritual that he knew was unnecessary. They're recognizing that and confirming that they did still agree that this is a Jewish thing and the Gentiles don't have any need to observe such things. Um, they affirmed some of these things that Gentiles are required to observe as it relates to idolatry, what meat they should eat, and sexual sin. The problem with this is that you're kind of making two classes of Christians here, and um, that can be viewed as a greater Christian and a lesser Christian. And so there's still a bit of a problem with the whole cultural thing and, and the observance of the law and the customs, and it's, it's not a sharp line in the sand. There's some gray area on what they ought to be doing. But certainly, none of those things were sinful, um, and they were delightful in the sight of God and required in the sight of God under the Mosaic Law. And so uh, it's a difficult, confusing thing for a lot of them, but they were at least clear on the fact that uh, it's a Jewish thing, and the Gentiles are not under that obligation, which is different from in chapter 18 where they were pushing the circumcision, sorry, chapter 15, pushing the circumcision, and Paul was not submitting. He submitted here. With the circumcision thing, nope, he talked them out of it. He said, nope, they don't need it. It's, it's, not, it's not required. <clears throat> so Paul goes along with the proposed plan. It says in verse 26, Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Right, so it was kind of a big deal that they went through this. Verse 27, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So despite this outward display of Paul's reverence to the Mosaic law and the Jewish customs and going through this purification, there were still plenty of Jews out there to get him. They proclaim that he's basically out there bashing Judaism, speaking out against it, speaking out against the law, speaking out against the temple, and then to kind of put a little sprinkle in some tangible physical kind of crime, if so to speak, in this accusation, which again was false. Um, they claim that he brought Gentiles into the restricted areas of the temple. <clears throat> and then it says, and all the city was disturbed. The people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. 
Well, that caught on fast. They very quickly had a full-on riot going and pretty much just went straight into a lynching. There's so many times that we've seen the Jews try to persecute Jesus and his followers through the legal system. They, d- they did manage to crucify Jesus, but that was the plan all along and not a win by the Jews. But they, uh, <clears throat> they would try to get um, the, the law, the courts, to do something about these Christians and fail many times. This time, they were in a frenzy, took no initiative to get him through the legal system. Instead, they just threw down right there dragged him out in the street and commenced to giving him a beat down. And they weren't going to stop when he was sufficiently whipped. They were going to beat him to death. That was their aim. But there was some law and order there, and the cops showed up, and everybody stepped back. The commander took Paul into custody, bound him with chains as a precaution. He didn't know what's going on. Um, this is crazy. This is, a, this is obviously a very serious thing. Um, the man they're beating, taking him into custody and, and putting him in chains seemed like the right thing to do. He's trying to control the situation. <clears throat> some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away from him, away with him. You know, as usual in Scripture, like I said earlier, that Things are written kind of plainly and and bluntly, and we're a little bit desensitized by the overuse of words. I mean, how many times have you heard about tacos that were awesome or amazing and incredible? I mean, it's tacos. So when we read Violent Mob or All the City Was Disturbed, I guarantee you that what you envision, just like me, it's it's much less crazy than the situation actually was, right? So we got to think about that and think about the context and and how, how the language is put here. Um, in reality, this was a wild riot, and military soldiers had to carry Paul out of there for his own safety. So when I read that he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, I first thought, well, he was hurt. He couldn't get up the stairs. They, they beat him bad enough. He, they, he needed help. Um, but in studying a little more, I think it's more that this mob was so crazy that even in military custody being taken away, if they didn't pick him up and take him out, somebody was going to probably slip in there and get a dagger in his chest or something. They, they were going nuts. So my understanding is that this, uh, this act of carrying him away was for his own protection. And again, the wording, you know, they're crying out away with him. It was a little more than, get this scoundrel out of our sight. I think they were cheering for that false legal justice now that they couldn't beat him to death with their own hands. They were hoping that raging against him might have some influence on the authorities to to get him executed. Kind of like the mob screaming at Pilate about Jesus. In verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? The commander replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So this commander has been acting under the assumption that Paul's a criminal uh, and he clearly doesn't know anything yet about what's going on, but Paul speaks this one simple thing, and all of a sudden it casts doubt in that commander's eyes on that assumption and on this situation. Now, there's some controversy here about uh, verse 38, where it says uh, 4,000 men, and it should have been 30,000 men. Um, this was not a thread I was willing to tug on, but uh, the point here, <clears throat> there, there's some, some history that could be studied. But the point here is that the commander was going, wait a minute what? You speak Greek? Who are you? He thought something totally wrong of the situation, and it was an important enough thing that Paul said 
and, and speaking Greek uh, to give him pause and, uh, and make him do something that I think is really interesting in itself, and that happens here. <clears throat> Paul responds to him. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, in the middle of the sentence, we're going to pause right there. That's actually the end of the chapter, but <laughs> we'll finish the sentence. Uh, Paul says he's a citizen of no mean city. And I, I looked that up in the Strong's, and mean means unmarkable or unmarked or ignoble. I know that didn't help me very much. So I read this in about a half a dozen different uh, translations, and it, and it means that he's a citizen of an important city. And Roman citizens, they have some protection, and this drastically changed Paul's position here. Uh, the mere fact that he could say something to the commander in the middle of this violent lynching as he's being hauled away, and the commander would stop and, and allow him to address the mob, uh, that to me was a bit shocking. And because he was allowed to uh, turn to the crowd and motion with his hands to call for their attention, I think it probably shocked them too. They're like, Wait a minute, why is the commander letting him speak to us now? And so everybody got quiet. And I think that goes to, to really help me better visualize how serious that situation was and the military intervention and uh, the importance of being a Roman citizen and things playing out according to God's plan. <clears throat> One minute they're trying to kill him Next minute, the military is dragging him off. They're hoping they're going to kill him. And the next minute, he's allowed to stand and, and say, all right, settle down. I got something to say. And everybody goes silent, and they let him say that. So, again, this was the end of the chapter. But there's not a clean break between uh, chapter 21 and chapter 22. It could have just been one big chapter. I'm not going to dive into it. I don't want to um, take away from, from anything that we're going to wade into next week. But I will finish that sentence there. In verse, 20, uh, verse 40, he says, He spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then in 22 and 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So he speaks Greek to the commander, says, Can I speak to you? Then he turns around and speaks Hebrew to the, to the crowd that was trying to kill him. And they, okay, they're going to hear him out. And next week we'll get into what he tells them and how well that gets accepted. So that is the end of the chapter. You know, there's, there's just a little bit of kind of history here, where he went, what's going on, and, and some situations, and, and it's kind of setting the stage for chapter 22, but uh, a big takeaway for me is, is that bravery issue, is that, um, you know, the influence of fear, everybody being afraid for Paul, and, and knowing that it's going to get tough, going to get real bad, and even though he's already been through a lot, it seems a bit different. It seems like the tone is, don't go, just please don't go. And Paul says, you know, you're breaking, why are you trying to break my heart? My mind's made up. I'm, I'm willing to go, willing to be bound, willing to die for Jesus. That tells us a lot about where his faith is, where his strength is, and it's a wonderful example. Um, weakness, I think, is, is a big problem that we all have in different ways and fear. And uh, we have each other. We have the church. We have Jesus. We have prayer. And if you are feeling weak, uh, afraid, then there's, there's nothing better that you can do than to come forward now as we stand and sing.